Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Begin by Soho CRM. So let's face it, you don't have to use spreadsheets, notepads, reminders, and 10 other apps to manage your customer information like you may be doing today. Whether you're a startup, a small business, or a freelancer, did you know that you can manage your business as effectively as any large corporation? With the current market, it's more critical than ever to retain existing customers while also staying on top of your sales pipeline. And you can do this with your business today by saying no to spreadsheets. Begin supercharges your workflow and helps you engage prospects, manage pipelines, and close deals without skipping a single beat. It has a super simple drag and drop interface, which will have you up and running in under 30 minutes. All listeners of our podcast can get up to 15 days for free, the free trial, along with a 50% off and up to $100 when you sign up. Just go to Soho.to forward slash begin Pantera Advisor and get started. If you're an entrepreneur or a sales leader, you want to listen to this. Let me tell you about Wingman. Not, no, no, not Tom Chris. Wingman is a conversation intelligence tool that helps folks like you coach and scale up their sales teams really fast, really easy. Now, I know you know scaling is not just about hiring. Getting the team up to speed can be the real speed bump. Well, Wingman can help you in getting that. It lets you build call libraries with game tapes relevant to every cell situation, complete with highlights and notes, and it's asynchronous. I mean, repeatable sales training engine. Not just that, Wingman even helps during sales calls with contextual battle cards and monologue alerts. The great thing about Wingman is that it plays nice with all your existing tools like Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoom, Teams, and Google. It even syncs up with Slack so you don't have to log into your CRM all the time for deal updates. So head over to trywingman.com to give it a try. That is T-R-Y-W-I-N-G-M-A-N.com. It's just the wingman your sales needs to really predictably beat revenue targets quarter after quarter. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So we have today a pretty unbelievable entrepreneur. I mean, he's done it so many times that I get dizzy, you know, just from thinking about it. But uh, I think that we're going to be learning a lot about success and then also about learning because you either succeed or you learn. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Matteo Berlucci. Welcome to the show. Hey, Alejandro. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me. So originally born in Italy. So give us a little bit of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? It was great. You know, I was born at the end of the 60s, 1968. So I grew up in sort of 70s and 80s. It was a great time. Um, a lot of scooters, a lot of going out with friends, sitting around and going to the lakes and going to the mountains and going to the beach. Uh, no tech. You know, grew up with zero tech. No mobile phones, nothing. So the only tech was the scooter. That's why, you know, where all the Italians were really into your know, Vespas and and so on. So it was great. And then I went to university there, studied theoretical physics. And why physics? Out of, out of all things, why physics? Because I was just curious. I was always a very curious kid. And you know, and physics is the 
the subject you pick if you're curious because you're looking for answers inside the you know the 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 rules of the universe <laughs> which obviously you can't find obviously you cannot find it but you you can but it's fun to learn all the math and 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 in your case too i mean being from italy and being able to eat that wonderful food that you have there i mean I mean, it's, it's similar to Spain. In Spain, you know, you, you are kind of like close to home always. So yeah. in your case, why did you decide to pack the bags and move to England? Because the problem with Italy still today is that it's a bit, it's quite difficult for, for young graduates to get into, into work. The system is not very conducive to kind of helping young people. It's getting better, but, you know, back then it was really, really difficult. So... I decided that I wanted to expand my horizon and it's still very curious. So I moved to England and I went to Imperial College um, to start to, to start a PhD in computing because the other thing that happened to me as a kid when I was around 15, 16, the first personal computers came out. You know, things like the the Commodore the ZX Spectrum, you know, and, and so we were the kind of the first generation with playing video games in arcades in Europe. So I always had the kind of computers at the back of my mind. So I decided to go to, to study computing after physics and the, the, the kind souls at Imperial took me in uh, for a PhD, which was on virtual reality of all things in 1993. Um, so I spent a couple of years there and then I dropped out to do my first startup. And also one of the top schools. So dropping out, I mean, it was a quite a big deal. So, so at what point do you say, Hey, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to go at it and, and do my first startup. Because I mean, back then, I'm sure that you probably felt the pressure too. I mean, whether you are in Italy or in Spain, you know, really in Europe, I guess they very much the culture back then is. You were either a banker, a lawyer, a doctor, a consultant. So dropping out of one of the top schools and then to start your own business, I'm sure that that was a pretty risky decision. Oh, I don't know about that. You know, I think you, it, it, this, it was very different time. You know, the, I dropped out because I saw the internet being born. You know, we're talking about 94, 95. And and I was just uh, very excited about the potential of the internet when I saw the first browsers. And and at the end of the day, why do you do a PhD? You do a PhD to either go into academia, which I never really wanted to do, or to find a good job. But you know, I was not doing computing to go and work as a quant in a you know in a in a financial institution. I always kind of wanted to push the boundary, and I always wanted to to do something different and, and useful and impactful. And so for me, the entrepreneurial call was very natural. I didn't perceive it as risky at all. Now, when you went at it, you know, you were definitely being able to, to ride the wave of the internet. And then you also, you know, got the exposure to deal making, you know? Uh, and um, so, yeah, so give us a little of a sense of, of what was that journey? Well, it was, very interesting because being there at the inception of uh, sort of the digital revolution, it was very, very different because essentially there was nothing. So all the things that are there today in terms of the ecosystem, 
from venture capital to platforms to tech and you know courses, universities, uh, talents, incubators, you know, the whole thing. There was nothing. So I I I like the analogy. Uh, you know, it was like building a house in the old days where there was nothing, where you had to make your own bricks and build your own pipes and build your own electricity circuit. So you had to do everything from scratch, you know. And uh, and it was fascinating. It was a lot of fun. It was, you know, and, and it was very exciting because there's this palpable feeling of potential which is what actually fueled the bubble, the first bubble in 1999. You know, everybody was like, oh my God, this is just going to be huge. Right. So it's like a gold rush. <laughs> but it was very mature. You know, there was very, you're talking about deal making. There's very little precedent. You know, when I did my first startup in 1995, there was no venture capital. Venture capital did not exist. So you could only bootstrap your company. Basically, there was no other way. You know, all the startups back then in '95 were bootstrap. So it's fascinating, and um, and there was this huge knowledge gap. You know, when you're going to talk to people, they were not following the, the kind of what was happening in the internet. It was like coming from another planet. <laughs> like, you know, as I remember, my first startup, we built the first website to search for homes online in the world. And the business model was to charge real estate agents to advertise the properties, right? Which I works today. So I remember going into the estate agents with the first color laptop with one of the first mobile phones because I had to have a mobile connection and showing them the browser. And these guys were like, oh my God, what is this? What is the internet? How can you do that? How can you see that on your computer? <laughs> so that's, uh, yeah, a lot of fun, a lot of uh, stories. So what, what, whatever happened with the, um, with the company? you know, net state and, and what was the lesson that you took with you? We, what I did after a couple of years we were running, we signed up all the top estate agents in London. And, and then I, I kind of tried to, I went to Rupert Murdoch uh, company, News International, which is the news corp in, 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 in Europe is called News International because they owned uh, uh, the Sunday Times, the newspaper. They essentially had the monopoly for classifieds, for real estate classifieds. So every state agent would advertise on the Sunday Times. And so when people were looking for homes back then, you buy the Sunday Times, there were like 20 pages of classifieds and properties. You had to go through them one by one. So I went to them and I said, guys, we got the platform, we got the database, we got search engine, we got a system for the agents to load other problems. If we do it together, you know, you guys are selling the classifieds when you're on the phone with the agent and say, do you want us also to list it on the web? For an extra, you know, couple of dollars, it's a natural idea. So they got very interested. We started negotiating a deal. Spent six months working on a joint venture, um, and then in the last minute, unfortunately, the deal fell through. You know, first big lesson, as you call them before, you learn. You know, you don't fail, you learn. <laughs> that was a big lesson, um, and uh, and unfortunately, we the deal didn't happen, and uh, but. Uh, that was a very insightful, you know, experience. What was the what was the lesson there for you to be learned? The lesson was that you need to have control of the deal. Because the reason why we kind of the whole thing went pear shaped was that I was supposed to run the whole deal, as in getting the 
the JV components, there were three real estate agents that were joining the JV and, and News International. I didn't really have full control of the, the key player sitting around the table. I didn't have enough understanding of especially the state agents who was sitting at the table. Did they really have the signing powers to do the JV? And one of them turned out not to have it. And it was kind of, that's what kind of kiboshed the deal. And uh, there was a big lesson, you know. So big number one lesson, you want to do a big deal with somebody, make sure you got full control of the deal, that you know everything's going on, who's who, who they report to, do they have the powers, do they have the money, just get as much information as possible. And then in, in your case after this, I mean, you did a few years, you know, working for companies. I mean, you even worked in one of the darlings of the dot-com uh, era, but what you ended up doing was, you know, learning the job, seeing, you know, like other people doing it too. And, and obviously, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur, because then you go in at it and you started your second company, Skinkers. So what was that uh, journey with Skinkers like? At what point do you realize, hey, I'm going to go at it again? Because that was a seven-year journey too. And, and it was, you know, pretty different. You know, in this case, you raise money from the likes of Microsoft too. Yeah. So that was very different because the, the world was different because uh, after the bubble there was a, a period of sort of reset but then like you know it's, it's like after the plague you know the the strong roots regrow and obviously a lot of the ideas during the bubble were actually really good ideas and and so kind of the, the foundations of the internet you know were pretty strong. So after the bubble, things resurrected. And I wanted to, you know, as you said, once entrepreneur, always entrepreneur. When I would did my stint at working for the dot-com, I, I was keeping, you know, thinking all the time about, you know, I want to do my startup again. I joined the dot-com because it was just crazy, the bubble. And I it was too late for me to launch something that would make it into that crazy you know, bubble, and I was hoping to cash out on the bubble. So I joined a company that was already very well financed, that was pushing very hard. And like everyone during the bubble, we were trying to IPO. And uh, and we just missed the window. Missed the window and uh, and everything then, you know, after that, it was like a nuclear wasteland for pretty much everyone. So because of that, I decided to then just go and do my company. That's why the skinkers I started at the beginning at the end, at the end of 2000, which is you know exactly at the you know the peak of the explosion of the bubble. And what was the business model there? How how were you guys making money? So skinkers was very interesting because we realized that the worlds were starting getting a bit too uh, cluttered with emails. No mobile phones, obviously back then. I mean, yeah, Nokia, Motorola, so I'm just <laughs> SMS, no, no digital stuff on mobile. So maybe people was getting getting inundated with emails, and so my idea was to create an alternative channel, as a kind of a parallel channel. So if you want, it's probably similar to what Slack is today or WhatsApp, like a separate channel for dedicated communication. They're centralized, so it's actually controlled by a brand, by a company that you could use with your employees. 
like Slack, or you can use it with your your customers. You know, if you're a big company with your fans, if you are a you know a, a fame a brand or a famous person, and we created the entire you know client server platform. So we did all these push notifications. We could push videos, surveys, and it did really really well. You know, we started working with some of the biggest companies in the world. We bootstrapped it. Then in and that was 2001. In 2004, five, we did our first raise. That was my first experience raising money from venture. Uh, again, very early days for venture. There were very, very few venture capitals around, especially in the UK. You know, because UK was always a couple of years behind the US on digital. So you know, UK, you in the US, you started already having the proper, you know, the Sequoia. Of this world, and uh, but UK was still quite small, so we did a raise, and then we brought in Microsoft as an investor, and we grew the company. We got a bit unlucky there with, and there was a lesson that unfortunately didn't teach me anything. I'll tell you what I what it happened. Basically, in two thousand and eight, there was a credit crunch. We were very focused on financial services companies. Because essentially our platform was really good for banks to communicate with all their employees and their staff and so on. So we had a very, very strong pipeline in financial services. With the 2008 crisis, all the financial institutions stopped all new projects. Like literally one day with the other. And we got hit quite badly because of that. And the lesson is that there is no lesson because there was very little we could do about it because, you know, you could argue that we should have had a more varied pipeline of clients. But, hey, you know, you go after the clients that you know that there is traction and they pay you well. And, you know, financial service was the best channel for us. So we were doubling down on 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 the low-hanging fruit. And so that was kind of quite painful. But we managed to to salvage the company despite the big hit on the pipeline. And we ended up uh, selling it for, you know, it was a decent exit. You know, we didn't become rich, but it was okay. But this was your first exit. I'm sure that felt good. uh, Yeah, it was okay. It didn't feel as good as I would have hoped because as an entrepreneur, you always think you're riding a unicorn, right, all the time. Yeah. So there was a little bit of uh, bittersweet. But that's, you know, that's the other big lesson of having done lots of startups now and having been involved in lots of startups. You shouldn't do it for the end result. Because if you put all your hopes on the end result, you probably will always or most times be disappointed. Even if it goes well, even if it goes well, you might be disappointed. It's all about the journey. You know, I think that if you choose to be an entrepreneur, you have to do it because you enjoy doing something, you know, from scratch on your own without yeah. uh, without a boss that does your management reviews every quarter. A hundred percent. And also when you're able to be completely unattached to the outcome yeah. is when you can really succeed because that's when you have more leverage during the negotiations too. So in your case, after, you know, the chapter here with Skinkers, you went at it again. With Live Station, you know, which you guys uh, fully bootstrapped, uh, obviously different here, you know, with the with the capital racing side, but you know, in this case for you guys, you know, like it was it was obviously you know a very competitive segment too, with streaming and and things like that. So how was how was that experience for you all? 
Yeah, that was uh, that was interesting because it was actually a spin out from Skinkers. We carved out a piece of tech and we just launched a new company. It wasn't actually the competition came after because the whole idea with Live Station was that we were essentially masters of streaming from a technical point of view, to the point that we were the first in the world to live stream on iPhones. A good 18 months before Apple themselves started supporting live streaming on iPhones. And I can prove it. There's a video of me on YouTube showing BBC News Live in 2008. And Apple started supporting live streaming in 2010. So that was an edge. So we had a technical edge. That obviously, the key value back then was to do, I mean, if you do live streaming, there's only two things you can stream, sports events or news. Sports was very difficult to do. There are lots of issues around rights and the systems were not that sophisticated. Also, the payment systems were not there. Um, They were starting some of the first proper, you know, plug and play payment stuff. So it wasn't really easy to use this for sports. And and they were not really streaming sports that much because they were all scared of piracy. So the, the people that did the events, they didn't really want to stream them online because it was kind of, they were scared. So we ended up doing lots of news and we signed up essentially every news channel in the world that you can name, around 50 news channels. We put them all in one platform. It was really cool because we had a desktop client and a mobile client. On the desktop client, you could run 16 news channels live on your computer. It was like a TV studio. You can watch all the news from around the world live and you can just switch the other by clicking on any of the streams. Super cool. We also had chat. So you can chat with our viewers. And that was good. We made some money. We did a lot of work with CNN, with Al Jazeera, with Bloomberg, CNBC. But then streaming became commoditized. It became very easy to just stream. Um, and so that kind of after a couple of years, two, three years, we made some good money. It's fun. Met some great people, streamed some great uh, news events from around the world. We stopped the war in Israel, between Israel and Gaza in 2009 earlier because of our ability. We streamed the events from the war from Al Jazeera into the United Nations in New York. That was the only way they could see it because they saw what was going on there. They passed the resolution to stop Israel from uh, pushing into Gaza, which was pretty cool. That is success to me. That is success. Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. As a founder, you need to always be in problem-solving mode and really being faced with challenging situations, whether it's with life or with the business itself. You need to find a way to find the, the better solution, the solutions that are going to help you to really overcome that roadblock. And a therapist, a therapist like, for example, the ones that BetterHelp matches you with could be a good option for you. And I mean, I remember, for example, for myself with relationships, with experiences, I've used therapy in the past and it really helped with unloading depression, anxiety. So BetterHelp is a really good solution. You could try it because it's convenient, it's accessible, it's affordable, and it's entirely online where you can get matched with a therapist that could be the right fit for you. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit 
betterhelp.com slash dealmakers today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash dealmakers. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So Again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. One lesson, you know, that I'd like to ask you here, you know, especially there's a lot of people that, you know, probably are wondering too, you know, in whatever, you know, uh, say phase, you know, they are with their companies because there's always, you know, you go through the desert now with your company until you reach product market fit and stuff like that. I guess in this case, at what point do you realize with a project? And I guess, you know, this is probably what happened here too. At what point do you realize it's time to move on? Ah, God, what a question. I think that probably, if I had to summarize it, based on my experience, there are probably two drivers for this decision. Um, the strongest one is financial. You know, if you start seeing that, you know, sales are not growing or they're stalling or they're going down, and, you know, the market gives you quite clear signals generally so if you see that you know it's going down then then it's probably a good time to stop and just move on um the problem there is the emotional bit because entrepreneurs are obviously irrational people because you wouldn't rationally launch a company because the odds are completely against setting up a company of any kind in any space <laughs> so you clearly have to be a little bit cuckoo to do a startup or any type of startup in any sector. So that, that comes with a dose of, uh, of irrationality and unjustified passion or attachment to your idea. So essentially you love your idea in a similar way to you love your partner or your children, if you have any. And so it's very difficult to, to let go because you convince yourself that things are better than they actually are. So that the so it's a difficult one. But you know, it probably is like when you you know, if you had a girlfriend when you're younger and you realize she wasn't the right one or or boyfriend and you you know, how do you decide to stop the relationship? Well you just wait until you wake up on one is like that's enough. 
<laughs> I love it. I love it. Now, 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 after after this experience with Life Station, you started the next one, Anobi. And uh, in this case, I mean, it was a little bit easier because you know you got literally put in this place with the right type of players, with the right type of financing. So maybe a little bit easier than starting something from nothing without any type of help. What happened there, Mateo? It was, yeah, Anobi was really interesting because essentially it got, it was a little bit flipped because generally the entrepreneur has the idea, goes to the investors and say, this is what I do, give me the money. This is kind of the other way around. What happened was three very, the three largest publishers in the world were bit worried about what Amazon was doing with Kindle and all those kind of things shifting online. We're talking about 2011 here, 11, 12. And that's when the iPad came out. And so they were concerned because the trend, which actually then changed, but the trend was that bookstores would disappear. And so everything would be online. And then online everything you know is winner takes it all online so if bookstores closed then it would mean there would only be amazon it's pretty simple equation right so publisher are worried because you know in a world where only amazon exists then you know if you're selling books it's not it's not a great world it's not a very pleasant place to be so they 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 look for somebody who could come up with the strategy to create something and build it that could provide a sort of, I used to call it like a, a life raft, you know, like a, a, some sort of place where publishers could go if things went really badly in terms of market share. And so I was approached by Headhunter and because I already, you know, at that point I had 20 odd years experience and I had pretty good track record. And they said, you know, what would you like to have breakfast with the CEOs? I was very you know, one of those kind of crazy moments in life when you have breakfast with the three CEOs of the largest publishers in the world in the same room. And they say, what would you do? And I say, well, this is what I would do. And they say, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. So you know, how much money do you need? They say, well, give me two weeks. I'll come back with a business plan. And I came back and I say, here's the business plan. And they said, wow, we love it. Here's the money. <laughs> Go and do it. <laughs> wow. So that was kind of. Now, now the journey here was uh, pretty interesting. Uh, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you is: instead of being the typical deal where you get everything acquired, you know, by by a larger player, in this case, what you guys did is you split, you know, the parts and you sold those parts. So why selling the parts? Yeah, the problem was that unfortunately things didn't turn out as we hoped, as as life is generally. So that's why you shouldn't do it for the outcome before the journey. Because one of the shareholders, and we're not going to make names here uh, because we're on record, but one of the shareholders um, went bust. And the problem was that the shareholder that went bust was the one that had the access to the market because they own the largest books chain in the UK. So the idea was to create this great digital platform and then use the retail channel to get it in the hands of people, which made a lot of sense. But these guys went bust. And so we suddenly found ourselves without the route to market because the publish couldn't, publishers couldn't themselves get this stuff out into the hands of people because they had no contact with people because you know, publishers sell their products through retailers. They don't sell them directly. 
So they essentially asked me to find an alternative. I went around to look for alternative routes to channels. We found a large supermarket chain here in the UK that was investing in digital. And they, they came in basically and they took over the operation. This system had basically an e-commerce component to sell ebooks. So it was like an Amazon for Kindle, if you want. But what we built on top of it, there was a distinctive thing, which was really cool, was a social network. So that you can actually socialize with other people that like the same books that you like. So it's like a community that was connected by what books you read and which books you liked. And that acted as a discovery channel. Because by finding people that had similar tastes to yours, you could then discover books that you may like to read. And that was the whole idea. It was to create a kind of a social discovery channel for books to then create a community and then plug the e-commerce at the back of it. The supermarket chain didn't understand the social bit, not surprisingly. And so we sold that to another company. It was actually a big publisher in Italy that uh, because we had a quite large user base in Italy. So it was kind of we split the tech, the e-commerce went to the supermarket and then the social network went off to a publisher in Italy. Now, after this, you did a few years in corporate, you know, also guest lecturing and things like that, which you still do. Uh, yeah. But again, hey, you know, the ball keeps coming to you. So so then you got started with your latest uh, baby, now a rocket ship, Healthily. So tell us about how did the idea of Healthily come about? Because as they say, you know, the ideas, they are dormant. You know, they take time to incubate, but then all of a sudden, you know, there's it, like a, an event that really pushes you over the edge to take action. So what, what 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 happened there? Well, there was a combination of a couple of years corp, doing corporate, and obviously as an entrepreneur, you kind of you get your itch, you know, your hands start itching. You go like, <laughs> so I was itching, and then I I had uh, I was kind of ready to because my job there at the corporate was to basically rebuild their digital infrastructure, so all the platforms, and which we did very quickly and quite well so my job was done fairly fairly you know swiftly so i was looking for the next idea and 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 like you know ideas don't necessarily have to come from you you know this came from a from a friend I was uh, having dinner with this guy and he said look you know why healthcare hasn't really changed one inch because of the internet and it's 2015 at this point and it got me really thinking because you know, as a physicist, you know, I like problems. I look at problems, analyze the problems because that's my training. And I started thinking about healthcare, consumers, you know, everything was changed by the internet. The internet has basically introduced self-service for everything from finding your next date to your next restaurant, your next, oh yeah. It's all self-service basically. It's a way to think of it, which is the way, the way I explain it to my kids. So what, what can you, how do you do self-service for healthcare? And, and I looked at all the data and I started studying and I realized that, you know, obviously you cannot transplant your own heart, but there's a bunch of things that you could do on your own, which is called self-care, that you don't do because you don't know that you can. So you don't know that you can self-care because unfortunately today, even for self-care, you need to go through a healthcare professional to be told that you can self-care, which is absurd. 
right? He's like, going to the bank, speak to the guy, say, well, you don't need to come here. You just do it on your phone. You're like, okay, well, thank you, but I didn't know. Okay, now you do. Just do it on the phone. And so that's what happening today. 30% of visits to doctors are for self-careable reasons, right? And that's it's a huge cost on society. You know, healthcare is slammed. There's not scaling. There's too much the demand on the supply. And that's what I kind of started working on. And uh, we were lucky enough to crack the problem technically because it was an absolute nightmare technically how to do it, which essentially we had to build artificial intelligence that can understand every person's situation from sort of a healthcare perspective and then give very safe, personalized guidance basically so you need actionable insights basically so that's what healthfully is and that's what we built over the last seven years it's an actionable insights platform completely personalized free of charge using ai that we developed all internally and it's been a really interesting journey seven years we raised 60 million dollars but here i mean as you were saying i mean this is your fifth company now and uh, I'm sure that there's so many things that you've done differently. And I guess the first one that comes to mind is how did you go about building the team? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's uh, the experience, you know, it's, it's very useful for these things because you hopefully you learn from your mistakes. And uh, so the team, I went about building it based on all the teams I built before, which is just trying to be extremely selective. So one of the things I've learned was that the quality of your team is one of the biggest determinants for success. And so as a founder and CEO, you should spend a lot of time on forming the team. While a lot of founders, I think, they just focus on the product and funding, but you have to do the team as well. And it's a super important priority. So for still today, seven years, I have done always the last interview for any person we've hired because I want to make sure that we hire people that have the right mindset. And because I'm the founder, obviously the company takes the DNA of the founders. So it's very important for me to make sure that we have people of a certain type. You don't always get it right. So obviously, you have people that come and go. You know, you have a, you know, it's a constantly evolving thing. Your team, you know, it's like a, it's like your product. You know, your product keeps on getting. You know, you do product market fit and you, you get user testing. The same is with the team. You continuously adjust the team, and as the company grows, uh, but it's very difficult. So one of the things I did that I strongly recommend to anyone uh, doing their own company is that as soon as you get to around sort of fifteen people you need to start investing in uh, human resources. You need somebody to start thinking about the culture of the company and all kind of the HR stuff. And, and because it makes a big difference, big, big difference. Like in the same way you would hire chief product officer pretty early, you also need to hire chief people officer pretty early, I think. And, and as we're talking about people too, I mean, how did you think about bringing, you know, the right type of investors that had the right type of agenda that would align too with the way that you were visualizing things for this company? I mean, that's a, a very difficult question, Alejandro, because you, unfortunately, the reality is that 
you try to bring the investors you want, but you end up with the investors you get. That's right. That's right. So, so what has been the experience then? Because you guys have raised over 60 million. So what has been the experience going from one cycle to the next? It's been, it's actually been probably the most complex thing for this company has been the funding history. Because on the product, it was challenging, but we knew it and we tackled it and we built the best AI in the world today. You know, And, and whoever is listening, please go to livehealthly.com and use the website. There is a very smart search, but there is a symptom checker that is the best in the world, being tested by all the big organizations. And it tells you what to do when you have a medical concern. So the funding was difficult because in a way, we were was such a pioneering company, healthily, you know, we're the first in the world to do AI symptom checking, completely focused on consumers, not doctors, in a space that's kind of very early, very unclear regulatory frameworks, which are very important in healthcare. So it was really, really kind of futuristic as a company. And so what we did is we raised money a little bit at a time, right? Instead of going, boom, big check, give us 100 million, we went kind of almost year by year because the journey was very zigzagged, you know, it was like, because we didn't know what we had to do, you know, so this is a complete going, you know, into darkness in a dark forest. And so it was very difficult to say, oh, yeah, we're going to do this and that. And in three years, we're going to be a bit that positive, blah, 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 you know, all those kind of stuff. This was like, hey, here, we're, you know, this is the real moonshot. You know, we're building a rocket to put people on Mars. So don't ask me when, how much it's going to cost, how many people are going to put there, how much money are going to make, because you don't know, right? And so it was really difficult. So we raised money every year. We raised a bit to get to the next milestone. Then we did a big thing in 2019. We had enough results to bring in a, a corporate investor, uh, a company called Reckit, Ben Kisser, which are one of the biggest over-the-counter companies, pharmaceutical companies in the world. You know, in the U.S., they make Mucinex, Lysol, and lots of other famous brands. Um, they came in. They gave us a pretty good hand you know, getting to the next stage. But, you know, we're not there yet. You know, we're still building. We're kind of, we're halfway through the journey still um, because it's a big, big opportunity. You know, healthcare is huge. It's a huge opportunity and is really, really behind. So as you're thinking about healthily and the future, and we were talking about vision earlier, we touched on that really quickly. Imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Healthily is fully realized, what does that world look like? Well, it's a world where Healthily is the website or the online thing used by everyone for health information instead of WebMD or Healthline or Google. It's basically it's Google for health. Like, I got a question, I got a problem, I go to Healthily because the technology behind it understands you and gives you clear, actionable insights on what you need to do. And that company would be worth tens of billions of dollars because it would be the Google for Health and it would be the gateway to healthcare. And it would help a billion people have very high quality advice free of charge in seconds 
something that today costs a lot of money and is a luxury because a lot of people, half of the world population does not have access to a healthcare professional. So it's a world that is more equitable, there's more health equity, there's more people that can learn about their health and how to stay in control of their health. Uh, so it'll be a healthier world and it would be a nice, very nice thing. And I would be very happy if that happened. I love it. Now, imagine you had the opportunity of going back in time. I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time to that moment where you were at Imperial doing your PhD and thinking about dropping out to start your own business. Imagine you were able to have a sit down and be right next to that uh, younger Mateo and give that younger Mateo one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why five companies in as you are right now? Ah, uh, God, it's a, this, the, it's a difficult one because there are two things that I could tell that younger Matteo. One is I would probably tell him something that I always had in the back of my mind. You know, back then at Imperial, 94, 95, I would sell to that Matteo. Matteo, in 1997, there's going to be a company called Google. Go and get a job there in 1997. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one because if I'd gone to Google in 97 I would probably ended up you know having a lot of fun because one of the things that I suffered the most from I think is that for my creativity and in you know the fact that I'm very innovative that the ecosystem in Europe has always been a little bit more difficult for innovators than the US in the US, if you're an innovator, you get a lot more, yeah, go, come on, whoa, here's some money. In Europe, it's like, uh, yeah, but are you sure this is going to work? We're not really sure. You know, we've done the discounted cash flows and the LTVs don't really work out. And, and it's like, oh my God. <laughs> so yeah. one of the regrets is, you know, I would probably tell him, go to the US. Go to the US, maybe get a job at Google for a few years. In terms of startup stuff, not really because, you know, it's like there isn't a formula for success. It, it just, you just do what you, you think is best every day. You know, every day you wake up and you do what you think is the best thing. And sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. There isn't a, there isn't a playbook, you know. So the only things that you control, you know, as you said, I do some lectures, I'll tell the aspiring entrepreneur, or tell them there's two things you can control. One is how you spend the money you have, and the other one is who you hire. Everything else is completely out of your control. The only decision where you can really decide is, yes, I want to spend money on this, and yes, I want to hire this person. Everything else is like not really in your control. So just make sure you work with nice people and have fun. And don't spend money stupidly. <laughs> That's the playbook. That's it. I love it. I love it. So, so Matteo, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? They can uh, email me, Matteo, at uh, livehealthly.com. Or they can connect on LinkedIn. I'm think the only Matteo Berlucci on LinkedIn, as far as I know. I'm definitely the one who comes Amazing. up first if you look me up. <laughs> Amazing. Well, hey, Mateo, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. It's been a real pleasure. It's my honor to be on the, on the podcast. Thanks, Alejandro.
If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.